Welcome back to another episode of Beyond the Ribbon. This podcast is brought to you by Pete's Car Smart Kia. These guys are not here just to sell you a car, but they believe in building relationships with their customers and the community. Visit their website at petescarsmartkia.com and be sure to follow them on their social media platforms as well. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Beyond the Ribbon. My name is Ryan Parnell and as always, I'm joined by my co-host and oncology nurse, Pam McMillan. We're back again for another great episode, aren't we? Yes, Pam, we are. And I know I'm speaking for you when I say this has been an episode that we have really looked forward to for quite some time, right? I think it was one of the first ones we mentioned that we would make sure we covered because I think it's important. Um, You know, we all have good genes and we all have bad genes and we need to learn about genetic testing to see um, what kind of genes we have. That's right. Some of them have holes in them. Some of them are are uh, acid, these days. acid washed. I'm dating myself there, right? Acid washed. Uh, yeah, it's it is a very complicated thing when you start diving into genetics and hereditary things. And so, uh, Pam, as we've always said, um, we're going to the expert, and that is really no different uh, than today, right? We're 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 pulling in another great expert. Um, this time out of the DFW area, Um, and we're super excited to have uh, Domini Mora with us. Domini is a certified genetic counselor, and uh, quite honestly, Pam, it doesn't get any higher than that, right, other than MD. That's right. We went to the expert. (laughs) That's right. Domini, thank you for joining us on Beyond the Ribbon. We're super excited to have you. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this. Well, good deal. Well, tell us about yourself, and then uh, we'll jump right into uh, getting into some genetics discussion. Okay. So, as uh, you said, my name is Dominique Mora. I am a certified genetic counselor, and I've been involved with cancer genetics in some capacity for a little over 20 years. Hard to believe it when I say that. (laughs) Um, So, as a certified genetic counselor, I'm mastered trained in genetic counseling. And I have worked in a cancer genetic counseling clinic in West Texas for over 16 years. So I was there meeting with patients one-on-one, working with doctors, providers, nurses, everyone related to cancer care, um, and loved every minute of it for 16 years, but it was time to move on. So now I have a different job working for a laboratory, um, still providing cancer genetic counseling support, but this time directly to providers who offer it themselves yeah. rather than to patients directly. I, I would bet, Domini, based on what you just said on, in your time frame, you probably started in uh, cancer genetics about the time that it really started kicking off, right? That's true. Yeah, I got my uh, first job out of grad school as a genetic counselor in 99, and that was really the very beginning of cancer genetics. So did you have some connection with cancer? There is a small amount of cancer in my family. I think it was just really more the excitement of starting something new in genetics. There have been other fields in genetics that I was involved with as a student, but cancer genetics was still really in its infancy. So it was exciting to be part of something that was still about to grow. Yeah, Pam, that's kind of an unfair question to ask right off the bat, right? You're testing the you're testing the expert. That's right. <laughs> but that's right. All, all, all kidding aside, Dominique, if you would, you know, I feel like um, my best way, and of course, I'm non-clinical, and it seems like my best way of of describing 
um, the state of folks, you know, and their knowledge, and, and I'm throwing myself in this in this arena as well, of cancer genetics is, you feel like you know a lot, but in reality, you know so very little. And there's a lot of misperceptions and a lot of, I mean, just, I don't really know. And so this podcast, for those of you that are listening, really is not the end-all be-all in terms of genetics. So we're going to kind of let Domini off the hook a little bit, but we just want to build that solid base and let's talk about, you know, basically genetics 101 and let's just dive in at the beginning of what genetics is and how it works and who should, who shouldn't and when and, and kind of what that looks like. So you guys that are listening, buckle in, or get a piece of paper out and some notes. Cause I almost guarantee there's probably a handful of you who um, much like myself know very little about genetics, but think we do. So Dominique, Let's start at the basics and, and, and here we go. Okay, so I'm just gonna throw it out there that probably some people might've heard of the word BRCA or BRCA. I think that has taken on some notoriety, especially since 2013 when Angelina Jolie came out and talked about her genetic testing. She'd had done and decisions that she had made right after. So I think that helped in raising a lot of awareness and so I think a lot of people can pivot back to that moment, hard to believe that's over eight years ago now, yeah. where there was uh, some more press about it and knowledge about it. But I think you're right. I think people have a general sense of what they think BRCA and genetics is. And when we're talking about what a gene is, a gene is actually made up of DNA. And that DNA has our instructions that actually make the proteins that do the jobs in the cells. So we have genes that determine how tall you are or how tall you're gonna be, how short you're gonna be, eye color, but our genes also control cell growth. So they determine when cells grow and when cells should stop growing. And I think that's a really important concept that we have in our bodies that cells shouldn't be growing forever. And when those cells keep growing, when some of the genetics are out of whack in that cell and that cell might keep growing, that's one of the reasons cancers start and cancers can continue to grow. So we all have genes. Is all cancers genetically um, abnormal then? This is where it gets a little tricky. So all cancer actually is genetic in that there is some genetic cause in some cell at some point where some genetic control switched off. Maybe that gene controlled when the cell should stop growing that gene doesn't function anymore, so that cell continues to grow. But doesn't, so that's a little confusing because just because it's genetic doesn't mean it's hereditary. So when we're can saying cancer's hereditary, it's because that genetic change or that gene mutation, however you want to say that, was something that was inherited. So it's in every cell of the body, not just that cell that turned into cancer. So in that scenario, somebody has a predisposition to develop cancer, maybe not develop cancer yet or until later on in life, maybe never, but they have a predisposition based on that genetic change that they were born with and they could potentially even pass on. So are the words interchangeable genetic and hereditary? Somewhat. So when we say genetic, we're encompassing all genetic changes. So they can even be in funky genetics that are going on in cancer cells 
when we say it's hereditary, it is a smaller piece of that pie. And we're saying that it's passed on from generation to generation. So, so all cancer is hereditary, but not all cancer is her all cancer is genetic, but not all cancer is hereditary. So the big umbrella, the, the, the big umbrella up top is genetic, and mm -hmm. underneath is some potential, maybe, for it to be hereditary. So just because you have the gene mutation does not mean you got it from a relative. Not necessarily. Yeah. So what types of cancer are hereditary? So about five to 10% of certain cancers are hereditary. The ones we see that tend to be more likely to be hereditary are breast, ovarian, pancreatic, prostate, colorectal, endometrial. Those are the big ones that are more common. There are some more rare cancers that can also be hereditary. I think typically, so when we say that five to 10%, it's five to 10% of those cancers. Five to 10% of, for example, lung cancer is probably not hereditary, right? I think we can say that most of the time that is environmental. Even very, if, if any of it's genetic, it's a very, very small percentage. So you said breast, ovarian, prostate, colorectal. Pancreatic. Pancreatic. Endometrial. Or uterine. People use those words kind of interchangeably, although we mean typically it's a lining of the uterus we're talking about, which is the condition. So let's talk about those types of cancers that are hereditary and maybe some of the things we ought to be looking for. Like I know, right? It's like, well, my my cousins, brothers, sisters, third removed relative, right? So that's where right. it all, right? that's kind of complicated. I'm just going to throw it on the table. That's, that's, this is the discussion to have, right? Right. And I think one of the important things to keep in mind when we're talking about cancer in your family is of course, still knowing your family history or being somewhat aware of what your family history is. Someone that's a little distant, like you just described, might not be as pertinent. So, you know, we're thinking parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles, both sides of the family, brothers and sisters, nieces and nephews, children, um, to a certain extent, maybe your first cousins. But I think once we start getting more removed than that, it can, we really need to look at the picture of what's going on. And that's something we do as genetic counselors. One of the first things you do and if you ever get to meet with a genetic counselor is going over the family history, setting time, during that appointment and drawing out a family tree and seeing visually what's going on, who's had whatever the major illnesses or diseases are in the family, ages of diagnosis, and see if there's enough of a pattern to recommend any type of testing. Is there anything that um, our listeners can do prior to coming to see a genetic counselor? Is there a tool out there that they can record who had what, at what age, what side of the family, because when you start talking family, especially for me, my family's so large, mm -hmm. it gets really confusing. And then the pressure of having all that information at the fingertip is, could be hard. Is there a tool out there? Um, sometimes uh, the genetic counselor you might be meeting with or provider might have paperwork where specifically they ask for certain family members. But there are websites, and there's one through the National Institutes of Health, 
there's a family history tool through the NIH and they can help you kind of drawing that out and kind of guide you towards that. So whenever you have that appointment, you can have that information kind of spelled out and what's most important and what's more pertinent for that conversation. Do those tool or that tool, does it help you to see if you're at a higher risk? I believe that tool is just independent of determining what to do with that information. It's just to put a way to record that. There are tools out there. So many laboratories and websites have tools out there where you can just kind of plug in some basic information and then you can determine if you're a high risk or not. Sure. So there are resources out there where you just plug in basic information and you don't have to do the whole tree in order to kind of see if you're at enough risk. And then there are websites like the Family History Tool where you can, it's almost like one of those DNA websites, you know, where you're ancestry.com or something, mm -hmm. um, where you're plugging in a lot of information just as a resource for yourself. So your, your main focus, if, I, if I'm understanding correctly, just to reiterate, the main focus of your family history and tree is going to be both sides, if you're married, both sides, and or even in your parents, both sides. And, and you know, you're going back to like grandparents area, and then you're going forward to maybe first cousin-ish area. Correct. I think beyond that, it's kind of difficult to know accurately what's going on. And Pam, I'm not, you're exactly right. You, you're, you're going to need, Pam's going <laughs> to. I'm going to need a, a binder to figure out my family history. She's got a lot of brothers and sisters and aunts and cousins and everything. Um, so this is one of those times where it pays to maybe not have quite so large of a family because there's not so much to remember and keep track of. But you, you touched on a, a statement you said earlier, which um, I want to remind our listeners is and it's it's very simple. It was four words. I wrote it down. Know your family history, um, and you know not just for. In in this instance, we're talking about genetics and 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 cancer, but I mean that's with everything, right? I mean that's that's heart issues, that's Alzheimer's, that's all the various things that may be genetics that they're not testing for currently, and of course is a whole different area of a podcast, not a, not in our specialty. But in this case, especially knowing your family history is huge and it may be incredibly challenging to find out who, what, where and when in terms of um, family members, because they may have already passed. How, how do you go about determining if, for instance, mom or dad or grandma actually did have breast cancer or what it was they had? Is there any ways to go back? I mean, I guess you could look in medical records, find out who their doctors were and so forth. I think going to medical records can be helpful if you're in a smaller town with more lenient rules, but when it comes to HIPAA, I think that can make things a little more challenging for us in this day and age. If, if there are any older relatives around, maybe there's an aunt, maybe there's an older cousin, right? We know those big families, sometimes those cousins are that older generation. You know, there's that big gap between the older cousins and the younger cousins. So maybe there's some older relatives out there who've heard more of those stories um, that weren't talked about with the little ones at that time. So I think it's worth reaching out and of course, talking to those family members while they're still around. We have so many more ways to communicate with people now with all the social media, texting, you know, our cell phones. Yet I find that people are not always in touch with their relatives or always keeping up with what's going on. Or sometimes people are just very private with that information. 
Right. And they don't want to worry other people in their family. Yeah. So where I'm where I'm headed with this, Pam, is how important it is for our survivors to come and meet with you and get their treatment summary and their care plan. Because that right there, the document is, it covers all the things we're fixing to dive into and talk even at a greater depth. Um, what did mom have? What did they, you know, what did that dad have? What did, you know, who, uncle so-and-so have? Oh, they've got this document that that wonderful, amazing, free cancer survivorship center did for them. <laughs> Personal plug. Yeah, little (laughs) plug there, little plug. But I mean, this answers all those questions of what we're about to get into. So it's it's vitally important, you guys listening, to take advantage of that free resource that Pam provides of going through your medical record, compiling it into your treatment summary and your care plan. So I've already made that plug. Now let's dive into what does genetic testing and counseling, what does that look like when we're talking about these? Uh, these five to 10% of these certain cancers? So when meeting with patients uh, about genetic counseling, again, that first step is drawing out the family tree, seeing what's going on, seeing if there's enough of a pattern or enough um, younger ages of diagnosis. So for example, if I take, if I was taking a family tree and one person knew, okay, well, my grandmother had breast cancer when she was 75, that's good information to know, but since she was older with that diagnosis, that was probably less likely to be hereditary. And then there, there's no other relatives with the same or related cancers who are not as concerned that could have been genetic. Whereas another patient might be coming in and saying, well, my mom had breast cancer when she was 45, and then her sister had breast cancer when she was 48. And now I found out this cousin's got breast cancer at 28. So looks like there's something going on here. You know, when you take a family history like that, or even part of that, then you know, okay, that looks very different than that grandmother with breast cancer in her 70s. So it's helpful to kind of draw out that picture, see what's going on, see if there's a pattern, see if uh, there's multiple cancers in the family. That's one of the things we're looking for. Um, If they're related cancers like breast and ovarian are related. If they are uh, younger ages of diagnosis than you would expect as women get older, we know that their chances of having breast cancer is more common. So if you're seeing breast cancer under 50, that's a red flag. Um, And then again, multiple generations, right? And like in that family, you just mentioned there was a mom, an aunt, and a cousin. What about those families you said related cancer? What if um, grandma had breast cancer, uncle had prostate cancer, another uncle has melanoma? Are those related cancers that you would be concerned about? Actually, they kind of are. Yes, those three are. I think we'd be less concerned if it was like, um, so breast melanoma, pancreatic, prostate, ovarian, those can be related. Wow. colorectal and other GI cancers and endometrial and ovarian can also be related. So ovarian can go either way. Um, so it's important for the survivor to give the full history, not just of the cancer they've been diagnosed with. If they can provide any age of diagnosis, I think that's helpful. Sometimes like if we have a family member diagnosed with maybe prostate cancer, they might have been diagnosed with it, but then they lived with it for so long and they didn't pass away from it, right? So it's, you know, somebody might say, well, my uncle had prostate cancer at 56, but then 
he passed away at 86 from just old age or a heart problem or something unrelated. Right. I think it's helpful to know that if it's, if it's possible to know that, that type of information. Are there any guidelines for genetic testing? Are National Society guidelines for that. Mm -hmm. So some big organizations like um, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, National Comprehensive Cancer Network, NCCN, and ASCO, those two. Um, other societies, you know, big societies that care for cancer patients like Society for Gynecologic Oncology, um, ACOG, American College of Obstetricians and, Gynecolog and Gynecologists, they also have guidelines. So many organizations and then insurance companies tend to have their own guidelines. Of course um, they do. Of course, they got to put them, you know, they got to control where the money is. So insurance companies often use like guidelines like NCCN in their own determinations as well. And those guidelines are forever changing, just like everything else in medicine, correct? So true. These guidelines can be changing every six to 12 months even. So it's important, hopefully as providers, that they stay on top of those guidelines and they know what's going on. So like maybe you don't qualify today, but in two or three years down the road, you might qualify for genetic testing. That's a very good point. Guidelines have expanded so much in the last couple of years even. So somebody who didn't qualify even last year or three years ago would definitely qualify, could definitely qualify today. So, so that's what I'm hearing, to keep in mind. So what I'm hearing, Domini, is you, you not only need to have your family tree, you know, do it, you need to update it and you need to continually, rather than saying, gosh, I got to keep up with all those guidelines because you just mentioned like 12 different organizations. The simplest thing is to do what? Communicate with your provider and ask, ask questions, right? Exactly. Yep. Bring it up. Talk to your provider. Let them know when there's updates to your family history. They're not always going to ask in the interval when you're going for a follow-up to make sure to bring it up. Mm -hmm. So what happens, the, the counselor determines that you qualify for genetic testing. How does that test work? Um, is it invasive, it's non-invasive? So physically genetic testing can either involve a blood sample or a saliva sample. So physically it's very easy to obtain that sample. I think most of us are pretty familiar with getting our blood drawn and know how that works. And it's really just one small tube is all that's needed. And if it's a saliva sample, it's even easier. Um, and it's a very small amount that's needed even then, just a couple milliliters for saliva as well. So either way, it's physically very easy uh, to provide that sample. And the results take about two weeks. Oh, wow. That's super fast. Now, what about everybody on your tree? Very good point. So when we're talking about genetic testing for a patient, usually it's most beneficial for the family to start off testing with someone who's more likely to be positive if that person's available. So that example I gave earlier with mom and aunt and cousin having breast cancer, it would have been nice to be able to test mom if she's still around, so she's able to be tested. And so if she gets testing done and then she's positive, and other people in the family could just get tested for that same genetic change that is found in her rather than going and testing all the different genes that are related to breast cancer. Now, so, yeah. 
cost-wise, if the if let's say mom was tested positive and um, sister, aunt, whoever tests next, do they? Is it the full price of the test? It can be cheaper. That's a very good point. So if we're only doing a targeted test and looking for the variant or the mutation that's already in the family, it can be a lot cheaper test. It can be a quicker test as well. Sometimes those results come back in just a few days. Um, and then it's a much more black and white test. We have an answer. We have a mutation. We know what's going on in the family. Typically, it's a 50-50 chance, depending on the gene that we're talking about, but very likely 50-50 chance whether that daughter or that sister inherited that same mutation or not. So if they didn't inherit it, for example, that example I gave, if mom was tested and the woman in front of you, let's say she's um, in her 20s and she didn't get that breast cancer genetic change from her mom, then she doesn't have to worry about passing it on. Because if you didn't inherit it, you can't pass it on and it won't skip you to go on to your kids. Yeah. Wow. I'm also hearing this could open up a big can of worms. Yeah, that's exactly one of the things I was just thinking about, Pam. Um, you know, it's one of those deals. Like, it's knowledge is power, but with knowledge comes some responsibility. So I would imagine that's I would imagine that's where the counseling portion comes in, uh, because now you go, okay, so what's next, right? You have your test and maybe it shows that you are a carrier of that gene. Um, yeah, let's kind of walk through that, Dominique, if we can. So that's part of what we hope to talk about even prior to doing the testing. So in that pre-test discussion, we do talk about what the potential results could be, what they would be considering doing in each of those situations. So while that person might be waiting for those results, hopefully they're thinking about that a little bit. But after those results are available, again, more of a discussion about what that means for that patient and what options they have as far as maybe just increasing surveillance, possibly thinking about taking medicine for risk reduction. And for some individuals, depending on their gene mutation and family history and concerns, we might even consider a preventive surgical option. So it really just kind of depends on where that individual is what their family history is, what they tested positive for. It, that testing positive does not automatically equal surgery. And testing negative doesn't always necessarily mean you're completely in the clear when that family history is still unexplained. So that's part, a big part of what a genetic counselor does is explaining all of that before testing and after testing and making sure uh, that they're all on the same page. Does testing positive if you have not been diagnosed with cancer guarantee a cancer diagnosis if you don't do anything preventative? It does not, but for example, if somebody tests positive for the BRCA1 gene, the risk to get breast cancer over a lifetime, so this is up to age 80, is around 85%. So it's a very high chance not 100% chance, but it is a very high chance throughout a lifetime. So I think if an individual, I, I think a lot of them what comes next has to do with your experience with cancer mm -hmm. and what you've seen your family members go through and what your own fears are and concerns and capability. And I think there, there's a discussion to have with somebody as far as where they're at and um, what their concerns are. But that, you know, we do see in families when there, for example, is that BRCA1 mutation, not everybody 
gets cancer and we don't always understand why. Right. You know, there's that percentage that will never get cancer, but we don't know who who gets to be those magical persons and who, who isn't. So if you have the BRCA gene, are, and let's say I have a daughter, should I be more concerned with having a daughter than a son with the BRCA? So if somebody tests positive, for example, let's talk about BRCA1. Mm -hmm. There's two genes, BRCA1 and BRCA2. They're very similar, but they have some slight differences. So BRCA1, um, if somebody, if a man inherits that mutation, he's, a man still has a 50-50 chance of inheriting the mutation, same as a woman would. So that mother that has the mutation, if she has a son and a daughter, it's 50-50 chance each time, 50% chance to pass it on or not pass it on completely random and regardless of the gender of that child. But let's say she does have a son, a son's chance of developing breast cancer is much less than a woman's chance. And that just has to do with his physical makeup the fact that men have less breast tissue and just their organs are very different. So a man's risk to get breast cancer with a BRCA1 mutation is less than 5%, probably even less than 1%, but it's still higher than you're a man without a BRCA1 mutation. But they could but, still pass that on to if they were to have a daughter. Exactly. exactly. So you're never completely out of the woods. <laughs> exactly. And that's where it might look like it might skip, I guess some people might say, because if a man inherits a mutation, his risks to get cancer are lower and he might not get cancer. And then in the past, there were some myths out there that men could not inherit these mutations nor pass them on. They can, and there's a 50-50 chance if he's positive that he could pass it on as well, regardless of the gender of his children. So if he had a daughter, I think there'd be more concern for her and what her risks are. So important information Unfortunately, though, I'm just going to throw this bias out there. We don't always see men coming forward to do genetic counseling and testing as often as we see women doing it. Those men out there need to get involved, take a stand <laughs> in there. Pam, I go back to when we had Trevor Maxwell on to talk about, you know, breaking down the barriers and the stigma and manning up to cancer and being a part of programs and getting help and and those things. And I mean, I just, I tell you, we are hard headed and, <laughs> and I, it, it's a challenge. And I wonder though, Dominie, if that, you know, goes back to the bury your head in the sand, don't want to know, don't, don't ask, don't tell kind of mentality sometimes maybe. There's some of that for sure. Yeah. And I think sometimes it's a little macho. But also sometimes it's just fear. I think people are scared to know, scared of what they could have passed on to their children possibly, right? So I think there's a big element of, of fear and uncertainty there and and then consequences to bury your head in the sand. Yes. Well, and I tell you, Pam, from the beginning of our early days, because we both were in a, worked at a cancer institution here for quite some time and I remember it was, you know, primarily, and we're talking a lot about breast cancer today, but that was a, the primary method of, of, of testing. And to hear now that, you know, you can have genetic testing for prostate and colorectal and pancreatic, I mean, all these, it's probably only a matter of time before we're able to have genetic testing for, you know, just about every cancer. And I don't know, to me, it seems like it's one of those things as it ever evolves that so evolving as well are the treatments 
and, and the methods of treatment and the ability to manage treatment and manage side effects. And so the cancer today is not the cancer of yesterday. And so I know maybe that may be playing a role, as you said, the fear of having consequences to bear and decisions to make. And it is not the same today as it was yesterday, just like today with, with uh, genetics and testing is not the same. Good point. I think something that we started to realize in the last years is genetic testing or genetic status can even help determine treatment options, which you were kind of touching on a minute ago. So even your hereditary status of having a mutation, even though it helps knowing that for predisposition, it can also help determine treatment options now, which wasn't a thing a few years ago. So I think it's becoming more of an issue for an oncologist to talk to his or her patients about, to go over those kinds of options when it comes to genetics, because it's not just what we're talking about future risks, we're talking about, well, what treatment do we give you today? Yeah. Um, so it's really evolving into that area of precision medicine. It's kind of exciting to see sure. being in this field for over 20 years, we're seeing yeah. some evolution here. Absolutely. Well, I have a question to kind of dovetail into that as well, Domini, is, um, if I go through genetic testing today, what is the likelihood that with my results, I'm going to have to make a decision in a matter of days or, I mean, like a, like a, a, a quick, I got to make this decision now. Or is it more likely that the decision I'm making for whatever I've got to have done or potentially have done is it something I can be, a, it's a calculated decision and I have time to speak and talk and visit and research and do? I think there's some element to timing there. I'm gonna give you an example. If somebody tests positive for a colorectal cancer gene, we know that the risks, again, to get colorectal cancer over 60% in their lifetime, you know, so that's very high. So we actually recommend someone to get colonoscopies every year or two. So we wouldn't want you sitting on that information for five to 10 years, where in the meantime, you could be getting those colonoscopies now and making sure you're getting them every year or two. Which is reasonable. So, exactly. So I think knowing the genetic information and acting on it in some way, at least for additional screening, might be important to do sooner rather than later. But I don't, you know, having a colonoscopy today versus a month from now, I don't know if it's going to make a huge difference. You know, if it's a month difference, unless somebody's, of course, having symptoms, right? And then that would be a different sure. reason oh, we're talking about entirely. Totally different. But let's say, for right. instance, you know, you hear people talk about, like you mentioned, um, Angelina Jolie, and I think there were a few other famous um, folks who have chosen to have uh, prophylactic bilateral mastectomies. So mm -hmm. if a woman is found to have um, uh, the gene that kind of, this is an option, it's not like you need to make this decision. If you're asymptomatic, it's not like you need to make this decision immediately, is it? No, correct. Not at all. I think, I think that that type of decision definitely takes time and consultation, discussion, consultation with the right experts, you know, some personal reflection. Um, presuming again, everything is healthy, but again, in the meantime, keeping up with whatever screening is recommended. Don't be sitting on that screening, making sure that you're still actively doing what's recommended because those screenings do need to be more frequent 
and then different methods of screening. And of course, start younger. I didn't mention that earlier with colorectal cancer, but most of these genetic syndromes, when we recommend more frequent screening, we also start younger, even as early as the 20s. Yeah. So. Well, and that, that's the, the point I, I was curious yeah. about is because I know men sometimes, that's my best part I can speak from is if I have to make a snap decision and uh, I'm afraid I'm going to go the wrong way, one way or the other, mm -hmm. that may be one reason why I'm hesitant to make this choice to have genetic testing. But if I know that I have some time, I can process, I can dig, I can do my research, I can talk, I can visit, assuming it's asymptomatic. Mm -hmm. uh, again, that's a big assumption there, but um, it's not something that I'm going to be forced because, well, gosh, I wish I'd have never done that. You know, you have time to, to process through and work through everything. I would say there's some time to work through. Definitely. Especially those that are childbearing years um, and they test positive and they're not done having their family they have time, correct? Correct. There's that. And for most of these uh, cancer, hereditary cancer syndromes, they affect adults. So it wouldn't be the kind of thing we'd even want someone to test for until they were a young adult. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we wouldn't recommend testing children. So I think sometimes parents do come to us and they want to test their infants or their young teenage children because it's the opposite end of that spectrum, right? They want to know and they want to know for their kids. And we want if it's not a gene that impacts uh, impacts the childhood cancer risk, we really want that child to make that decision for themselves when they're an adult, at least 18, if not early 20s, mm -hmm. so that they can decide, they can do their research, and they can determine for themselves when they're ready to know that information. Yeah. So I think there is some time to, be, to have some type of reflection, as long as somebody is, you know, again, still doing whatever screening needs to be done in a timely manner. And you talked about the BRCA testing and the Lynch syndrome, but there's also this gray area of the variance of uncertain significance. What happens whenever somebody gets that back? Very good question. We've been talking about positive results and negative results. And so when we do genetic testing, part of the pretest counseling is, of course, letting patients know there is some gray area. So sometimes there are what we call these VUSs, variants of uncertain significance, and that's a possibility of a type of result. So we do bring it up before the results even come out so the patients are aware of that. So when a patient gets one of those results, they just unfortunately have just have to wait for that laboratory and the genetics community overall, scientific community, to get more data on that particular VUS. And then eventually when enough data has been gathered, their doctor or whoever ordered that test will be notified of that reclassification and then they'll get notified. Recently, I've heard of one reclassification that happened. I know of ones that have happened one or two months later, but then I know of others that took a few more years than that, even as long as um, a dozen years. So sometimes it can take a while for all that data to be accumulated and for that VUS to be reclassified. But eventually, we will learn more. We as a genetics community and that patient will get updated. So it's important to stay up to date with their screenings, going to their doctor um, and telling them if family history has changed. Yes. And I even ask, you know, the other thing I used to encourage my patients is um, when you have a VUS, maybe you're changing doctors and maybe you move cities, you know, you want to just can go back and ask your doctor, hey, have you heard any more about this? This happened 
five years ago, what's going on? Has it changed? Have you heard any more about it? Again, especially if you're moving around or changing doctors or if the doctors move around, you know, they're changing practices, it, it could be a good way to, to bring that up again. So keep up with the family history, but also ask again about those results. Another thing that's happened is we have more genes to test for now than we did before. Mm -hmm. I've seen this evolve. And when I first was involved in cancer genetics for breast cancer anyway, there were just two genes. Um, there were just two genes for colorectal cancer. And now when people order genetic testing, cancer genetic testing, they can test for anywhere from 30 to about 100 genes, depending on what's going on in that family history and what they're looking for. Wow. It, this, is, this is an exciting time, you know, in, in, the, in, the, in the science world. You know, I mean, golly, that is amazing. And who knows in a year, two years, as fast as science evolves and, and our scientists are working through uh, the ability to do this, it's, it's very Star Trek-ish, but it's really exciting and unique and cool. And you, and you get to see this <laughs> on a regular basis. I do. That's what's I neat. still get excited to know that all this is actually, you know, something that I get to do every day, something I'm involved with. And sometimes when you step back and look at it, you realize, wow, this is what I get to see change. And I get to help people learn more and make decisions. Yeah. So for the listeners that are listening, um, what is one piece of advice if they're thinking, man, I've got some family history. I really wasn't very clear with my doctors. Um, Aunt Sue tested. She was positive. What would you tell them? I would tell patients to just be your own advocate to make sure that doctor knows what your family history is and what your concerns are. And to be relentless in that, make sure that if that hasn't been addressed in the past, it gets addressed either that day or that next appointment. Be an advocate. Yeah, Pam, that 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 we've had that you know saying pop up much like we talk about communication uh, a lot of being your own advocate, staying on top of it, and this is one of those types of. Um, pieces of things that you got to stay on top of but boy you, you really it's it's not something you 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 put it on the shelf and let it sit for a long period of time there may be some revisiting and revisiting depending on 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 uh, changes in your family history and adaptations and so you probably want to do it in pencil you probably want to <laughs> make sure that you know i mean all kidding aside it is very very important you guys that are listening um to do this and um, I, I'm, I'm just going to be the first to say I've not I've not done a good job of of knowing all of my family history. So I've got some homework to do after this podcast. And I feel like maybe there's some listeners listening who also have some homework to do as well. Most definitely. Oh, yes. Um, you know, being your best advocate plays a, a vital role all the way through cancer treatment. And here you are once you have finished your cancer treatment. Uh, you now need to be your own advocate for potentially for genetic testing and advocate for your family your and, and your children and, and so forth. It's, it's incredibly important to continue to maintain that advocacy for this. Yes. Dominique, do you have any other advice for our listeners about genetic testing? I am going to copy what Ryan said earlier, and knowledge is definitely power. 
knowing your family history, knowing your genetic status could really lead to either preventing cancer or getting cancer caught at the earliest stage possible. So genetic knowledge is genetic power. Ron, you know, we always give our listeners um, some homework. So maybe we should um, tell them to get the pen and paper out and start jotting down their um, family history. They need to make some phone calls, send some text messages, send some emails, do some digging, right? And and start filling it. I mean, I, I'm I'm in that boat. And I, I you guys listening, I I'm doing it. I'm I'm on it. And that's something that's very important because I I I feel like I have neglected a little bit of that. So uh, I'm gonna do my homework. We challenge you guys listening to also if you've not done your homework, you need to get busy on it, right? That's right. We like to leave our listeners with one um, Pete's powerful moment. And we would like to, um, we are sponsored by Pete's Car Smart Kia. And we would like to hear your powerful moment. A powerful moment I had as a cancer genetic counselor was when I actually went on a radio show similar to this. And I had a patient come and tell me afterwards. She went ahead and did her screenings she was supposed to do after she heard the pod, after she heard the radio piece, and she thought that that piece saved her life. She found a cancer much earlier than she thought she would have, and so listening to the radio, listening to podcasts can save your life. I don't think there's a better powerful moment than that. No, there's not. And um, yeah, Dominique, that's that's. I mean, what a heartwarming feeling to know. Um, sharing your passion for uh, cancer genetics um, made a difference in someone's life. Absolutely. That's so great. You know, you guys uh, listening, I tell you, as Pam said, we always leave you with some homework. Um, this, t- this week, you've got a little added bonus of homework. In addition to uh, liking and subscribing to our podcast, downloading the episodes, they're all free. And the, the key on this too is, is this is one where we always say, share the podcast, share this and share the podcast and pass it on to to so-and-so, so-and-so. This is one of those ones, Pam, where there are probably very few people who have not had a cancer diagnosis in their family. Yeah, and that number is probably even smaller than those that have just had one. And so, you know, the thing of it is, is this is so, so important, so important. Um, to be educated, know your family history, share your family history, get that uh, treatment summary and care plan if you have been through cancer treatment, and um, make sure that your family knows about this because it, it's going to carry on, right? Hereditary means it continues to be passed on or potentially passed on. And we want to make sure that everyone in your family, your friend's family, and so forth, they're all educated about this. Those holy genes keep getting passed down. <laughs> they do. They do, don't they? I tell you. They do. We, we, especially when you have holes, you need to buy new genes. Unfortunately, <laughs> you can't buy new genes. That's, That's going right. to be a challenge. That's going to be the challenge. Dominique, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your passion uh, and educating our listeners. Um, this is one of those things that um, they're going to need to take this and run with it, Right. Yes, sir. Thank you for having me today. It was a pleasure. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for joining us. And I tell you, you guys, every week, um, you never know what wonderful topic we're going to cover 
how much it's going to be impactful, how much it's going to help you, your family, your loved ones. So make sure to join us again next week for another great episode of Beyond the Ribbon. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Beyond the Ribbon. Make sure to subscribe to our weekly podcast and follow us on social media for news and updates. If you'd like more information about the 24 Hours in the Canyon Cancer Survivorship Center, please visit our website, 24survivorship.org. Thanks again, and we'll be back next week.